Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, we've just, on the podcast here, we've discussed before how science is sort of this gigantic slime mold, feeling its way through a maze. You've got tapers of its substance seeking down long, twisting corridors in search of that, that food prize. Uh, I guess the food prize of knowledge in this case. <laughs> and when they find it, uh, when we find it, it's on to greater meals. And, uh, and when uh, this science slime doesn't find it, well, the tendrils of inquiry tend to die back, and the, the system knows which tunnels are fruitless. So this scenario is is somewhat true even in times before science or times during which scientific inquiry was still held back by various shortcomings because humans still proceeded on a, a basically by a trial and error basis and there's no surer way to err than to base a hypothesis on purely magical thinking right because today we are going to be talking about some sympathetic blood magic some magical thinking that has supposedly been at least proposed if not actually used in the history of, uh, what would you call it, seafaring navigation, uh, finding one's, one's allies under cover of deep ocean, and determining one's place on the globe. Now, I like this metaphor, Robert, of the slime mold as, as, as the model of scientific progress, because one of the interesting things about scientific progress is we, we can almost definitely say that progress is actually made in science. In other realms, it's debatable whether progress is made. People argue about whether there's actual progress in philosophy. Mm-hmm. We just had our uh, interview with our Scott Baker, and uh, Scott did not seem to think that uh, philosophy actually made much progress. He says, you know, we're still asking the same questions that we were asking thousands of years ago, and we don't really have new answers to them. Science isn't like that. Now we definitely know things that we used to not know, and we can use that knowledge. And yet there's nobody at the top of the scientific process. There's no brain of science making decisions about what's knowledge, what's not knowledge, what's true, what's not true, what areas are the best to explore. So in the way you use this analogy of the slime mold, it's almost like a, a it's a process that's blind from the top down and yet really does make true progress from the bottom up. Yeah, there's no there's no brain here in the slime mold. There's no uh, king of science, no secret cabal running the whole scientific operation. And I think the fact that science is like that, that it doesn't have a top-down control process, that it's just this emergent phenomenon that nevertheless produces real results and actual progress in the world that you can be quite sure are real progress, It's one of those things that makes it hard to define. And we've talked about the difficulty before in defining science in producing a a definition of science that is, quote, necessary and jointly sufficient. We talked about that back in our episode about, uh, you know, the beyond this veil of testing, like whether things that were maybe post empirical could still be considered science. And so a, a necessary and jointly sufficient list of properties to describe science would be something Uh, that describes everything within the category of science and nothing outside of it. A good example would be a list of properties that are necessary and jointly sufficient to describe a triangle, right? Mm -hmm. A triangle is a closed two-dimensional figure with three straight sides and three three angles. This rules in everything that is a triangle, and it rules out everything that is not a triangle. 
sometimes it's really difficult to do something like that with science. How can you come up with a list of properties that describes everything that generates true scientific knowledge and rules out everything that doesn't? Uh, so it seems to me sometimes science might be more like the concept of a game, things that fall into a category that uh, Wittgenstein would have called family resemblances. There's sort of like overlapping similarities between the things we call science, but there's no list of properties that everything has in equal measure and that nothing that is not science can claim. But nevertheless, we do know some really basic categories that we can say pretty much seem like they pretty much always appear in science, right? One of them is going to be subjecting ideas to empirical testing. That means you, you can't just do science in the hypothetical. At some point, it needs to encounter a test in, in real-world conditions, right? And then the other thing is that um, when successful, science produces ideas that generate accurate predictions about reality. So if you're doing science right you should be able to predict the future with the ideas you create from it. That's right. Now, there are, are plenty of inherently supernatural notions, of course, that, that cannot be proven one way or another. Mm -hmm. But when you engage in this process uh, to produce a definite, measurable result, then you have something. If you're, if you're going to work some sort of magic and, and there's a definite result, something measurable, something observable, if you set off down this path, you're going to get an answer, and, uh, and you can probably know what that answer is going to be if, if, you're, you, if you have uh, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of scientific reasoning about you. Yeah, I think one way of putting what you're getting at here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if there is genuine magic power in the world, you actually should be able to do science to detect it. Like, even if the causes of it are not necessarily physical, as we would understand the classical concept of physicality, if there's some other kind of property in the universe guiding it, we should still be able to do science to detect magical phenomena as long as the magic behaves in a consistent way. I think this is the thing that's crucial to me. And maybe from here I would split proposed magic into two categories. There are two camps of it. One is what you might call magical law. In this sense, it's something that happens in the universe and it happens outside the laws of physics, and yet it still behaves consistently. You do the same stimulus, you get the same result. So every time I cast a spell of the same type, I get the same actual outcome. Okay. The other one I would call capricious magic. And this is magic where it's not really clear what the consistency of cause and effect should be. Maybe it works sometimes, it doesn't work other times. If you have a magical system like this, you really can't do science on it because the idea of science is that you can reproduce your results, right? Yeah, well, this makes me think of a few different examples here. So, obviously, the existence of a god, like a, a, a big G god, a divine uh, being that created the universe. Mm -hmm. That is, most agree that that's not the kind of thing you can really scientifically prove one way or the other. Right. There could be, there couldn't be, and science doesn't really give you much help knowing the answer. Right. And you can always sort of adjust your parameters for that question to lean one way or the, or, or the other. But what, an area where it becomes a little more interesting is when you look at, uh, let's say, the healing powers of prayer. And there have been a number of studies that have looked into this. Right. This, this is an area where, it, on one hand, it seems rather straightforward. You know, okay, 
this person prays, and then we can see if if health changes. Right. But of course, you're in, you're engaging not only like magical thinking, but also varying levels of psychological responses. Well. Right. You could have a placebo effect and stuff like that, and that's why if you wanted to do a genuine good prayer study, it would need to be blinded with mm-hmm. proper. Uh, scientific procedures so the people in administering the study and the test subjects and all that don't in fact know whether they're the ones being prayed for or not. But then on the other hand, something like turning um, staffs into serpents or water into <laughs> wine, stuff that's like a genuine miracle. Uh, that's where it's very clear. Yeah. You know, where there's be, no like mediating chance effects. Right. Unless you ended up explaining it away by sort of the whole, uh, you know, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test kind of a scenario. And uh-huh. then you're opening it up to, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. You put it back in the capricious magic right. car- uh, category. Not to say that if you believe God behaves that way, that you necessarily believe your, your deity to be capricious. But at least the outcomes seem capricious. There's no way to predict them. Mm-hmm. And if there's no way to predict them, then there's really no way to test it to see if it's true. Right. So we're going to continue talking about this topic. But uh, essentially, as, as the title of the episode uh, suggests, we're we're kind of playing a, a what if game to some degree as well as we discuss uh, as we dive into some history and some science here. Because it's always it's endlessly fascinating to to play what if games with history. So. What if European imperialists had uh, suffered more from uh, the New World illnesses than native people suffered uh, the Old World pathogens? Mm-hmm. What if the wrong herald had won, at the, the, won the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066? Uh, and, and what if the divine wind had not saved J- Japan from Mongol invasion? Okay, but these are all fairly standard historical outcomes. I mean, we, right. we like to play the game of alternate history. You know, mm-hmm. Everybody plays it with the man in the high castle as one example. Of- yeah. How many people have played this? What if the Axis powers had won World War II? What would the world look like? But that's all that's all non-magical. Are you, are you planning to explore with me how would history look different if magic had been real? Uh, to a certain extent. Because, okay. yeah, any of these events, if they had occurred, they would not have changed our understanding of physical reality. Mm-hmm. But we're going to look at a couple of cases where... Some degree of, um, if not scientific investigation, then, then, then at least semi-scientific inquiry went into uh, a scenario and attempted to solve a real-world problem uh-huh. with essentially magic. Right. If, if any of these cases uh, had gone differently, then yes, we would have we would have an age of magic because it would have changed everything. We would live in a in a drastically different world. Okay, well, I have faith in you, Robert. I want to follow you down this rabbit trail. So so take me wherever you're thinking we need to go. All right, we're going to do a quick break. And when we come back, we will consider a world, a magical world, where uh, navigation of the high seas depends on uh, the magical torment of dogs. All right, we're back. So we're going to be talking now about longitude. Uh, the, the, and the the actual uh, problem of longitude is it uh, related to uh, to high seas navigation? Okay, now which one is longitude? That's east west direction, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, longitude is east west positioning. Uh, latitude is north south positioning. Okay, and uh, and and we'll get into to why this is a problem uh, in a bit. But first of all, let's 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 break down um, the potential solution that was uh, that was uh, that was instrumented, and that uh, entails. The use of uh, sympathetic magic. Okay. Now, sympathetic magic dates back to humanity's distant prehistoric past. This is the idea that you can 
heal a wound by treating the weapon that caused it or that uh, possession uh, of an individual's toenail clippings gives you power over the former owner, that you have to hide your hair uh, after you cut your hair so a witch doesn't get it and use it against you. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, there's a there's a rich variety of, of, of sympathetic uh, magical uh, uses throughout history. Yeah, sympathetic magic, I think, is considered a major class of, of magical behavior. And this the Scottish anthropologist James Fraser actually wrote plenty about uh, sympathetic magic. We've talked about Fraser on the show before. Mm-hmm. I always want to call him Fraser, but there's not that extra I in his name. Uh, so James Fraser wrote The Golden Bough, you know, one of the big influences on T.S. Eliot, one of the big influences on modernism. Generally, it was this anthropological work that was attempting to explain the origins and uh, of uh, religious customs around the world. And it is a fascinating book to jump into. I, it's one of those that I've never read cover to cover, but I jump into different mm-hmm. chapters and read them. And Fraser, I think, would not hold up to modern scrutiny in terms of anthropological methods. So I'm sure a lot of what he reports is not necessarily correct data about, you know, different peoples all over the world. It's based on a outmoded anthropological data gathering method. You know, he's relying on all these weird anecdotes and stuff. But he also just has a lot of really interesting analytical things to say about the way people think about magic and the way people think about religion and the relationship between different magical and religious ideas. So he breaks down sympathetic magic into two different categories. One is homeopathic magic, which is the law of similarity. Okay. And the other is contagious magic, which operates on the law of contact. So I'm I'm going to read a a quote where he talks about the difference of the ideas here. Quote, homeopathic magic is founded on the association of ideas by similarity. Contagious magic is founded on the association of ideas by contiguity. (laughs) Uh, Homeopathic magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which resemble each other are the same. Contagious magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which have once been in contact with each other are always in contact. But in practice, the two branches are often combined. Or, to be more exact, while homeopathic or imitative magic may be practiced by itself, contagious magic will generally be found to involve an application of the homeopathic or imitative principle. And I think there's a lot to what he's saying there. We've got this general idea that you can use one thing that's like another thing in order to have some kind of magical influence. Uh, think of a, a you know a doll that represents a person, right? Looks like mm-hmm. them, and you can use that to manipulate the person. Uh, but almost any time you have the idea of contact, you can't just touch a random thing to a person. Usually, I mean, maybe in some cases you can uh, touch a random thing to somebody's arm. And then now you've got power over them. Usually it seems like it needs to be a thing that has some kind of sympathetic root with the person. Like it's, it's, it was formerly a part of their body mm-hmm. or it's something that belonged to, I don't know, a member of their family or something like that. Now, another one of the key observations I think Fraser makes is that in the mind of the magic believer, quote, logic is implicit, not explicit. And I think this is one of the things that's key to understanding what magic is when when we try to reckon the idea of magical thinking versus scientific thinking. And I would put it like this. With scientific explanations, 
a lot of times when you uh, when you see a phenomenon in the world, it doesn't seem to make much sense. You don't understand why it happened. Mm-hmm. But when you get a scientific explanation, it starts to make more sense, right? And the deeper you go, the more everything fits together and the causal relationships become clear. Magical thinking, on the other hand, means that the more you try to explain exactly how magic works, the less sense it makes. Yeah. Just think about watching fantasy movies or reading fantasy books. I would say in my experience, I don't know if maybe you'll disagree, but in my experience, the more general and vague the magic, the easier you accept it. And the more explicit it gets about magic powers, how they work, where they come from, the function of magic objects, all that. If it gets really deep into the weeds, almost like trying to explore the scientific causation underlying magical influence, it becomes more and more ridiculous and makes less and less sense, at least in my experience. I would agree with with that in most cases. I think the the, the rare exception, and one of the reasons, one of the, the many reasons I love the series so much, is that R. Scott Baker's dark fantasy series, the the Second Apocalypse, like he has a really thought out magical system that's ultimately you know based in in philosophical models. So that one works for me. But I think for the most part, it, you're, you're correct. There's a certain I think part part of the thing is here is so you have a wizard on the screen casting a spell using you know homeopathic magic or, or contagious magic perhaps uh-huh. like both of these are forms of magic that kind of make make a subconscious sense to us in just in our daily lives for, for instance with with contagious magic I instantly think of examples of someone's someone's like oh uh, you know I shook hands with a famous person I'll never wash this hand again right or sentiments of like oh this this shirt was touched by by uh, you know, Paul McCarthy. I, I can never wash this again. Paul McCarthy. Yeah, Paul McCarthy, uh, the, the Beatle, right? Paul McCartney. McCartney, not McCarthy. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a lot of uh... man. You got ripped <laughs> off on eBay, Robert. <laughs> Darn it, uh, Paul McCarthy. Um, yeah, I thought he he was really down on communism for uh, you know uh, uh, an old school rocker. But anyway, uh, my my point being that both of these types of magic kind of play into the the ways we we think about objects and we think about contact. Oh, totally, yeah. I think it's interesting that uh, that you see homeopathic alternative medicine still being practiced today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea, you know, and, and it really does have a root in this idea of homeopathic magic because here it's the idea of similarity gives things magical influence over one another. In homeopathic medicine, so-called medicine, the, it's, the idea is basically that like cures like. One, mm-hmm. A thing that produces one effect will also cure that effect. Yeah, yeah, this is a good point. Now, I mentioned this weapon example earlier, and that's going to be key to what we're discussing about, the idea that you could heal a wound by treating the weapon that caused it. Okay, so if I walk up to you and stab you with a Bowie knife, yeah, and then later I feel bad about it and I want to heal you, but I can't find you, Mm-hmm. I could just what wrap bandages around the knife. Yeah, it's kind of like like he's been stabbed. Get this knife to a hospital <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> um, it, this was a, a real idea that was uh, that was that was rather popular in the 17th century because it all entails this uh, thing that was called the the powder of sympathy. Oh boy, that sounds great already. Yeah, this was uh, the, the idea here was simply dust the weapon in this special powder, and you in turn treat the wound uh, it created. It's uh, it's. You know, it's kind of a spooky action at a distance kind of scenario. 
This particular notion was concocted by natural philosopher uh, Sir Kenelm Digby, who lived uh, 1603 <laughs> through 1665. Distant relative of Arthur Digby Sellers. <laughs> he wrote a book on this subject, Discourse on the Powder of Sympathy, and it went through like 29 different editions. Uh, wow. And, uh, so popular stuff, I guess. Yeah, it, 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 it made the rounds. Uh, and he would, in this book, he would describe how he could, he could make a patient jump by putting uh, a dressing from the patient's wounds into a, a basin full of this special powder. Wow, okay. Yeah. So it is sort of like a, it's like a, a remote acting sympathetic magic catalyst, essentially. Yeah. And uh, I actually have, uh, have some instructions on how to make it. Uh, that I'm going to read. You're going to jump in with some uh, some explanations here uh, as needed. Uh, but this is Digby's own words. Okay. Take good English vitriol, which you may uh, buy for two pence a pound. And, of course, vitriol means sulfate, usually sulfuric acid. Dissolve it in warm water, using no more water than will dissolve it, leaving some of the impurest part at the bottom undissolved. Then pour it off and filter it, which you may do by a coffin of fine gray paper. Wait, put, a coffin? <laughs> that's what I have here. Uh, put uh, put into a funnel or by, by laying a sheet of gray paper in a sieve and pouring your water or dissolution of vitriol into it by degrees, setting the sieve upon a large pan to receive the filtered liquor. When all your liquor is filtered, boil it in an earthen vessel glazed till you see a thin scum upon it. Then set it in a cellar to cool, covering it loosely, so that nothing may fall in. After two or three days standing, pour off the liquor, and you will find at the bottom and on the sides large and fair green crystals like emeralds. Drain off all the water clean from them and dry them, then spread them abroad in a large flat earthen dish and expose them to the hot sun in the dog days. <laughs> Taking them in at night and setting them out in the morning, securing them from the rain, and when the sun hath calcined them to whiteness, beat them to powder, and set this powder again in the sun, stirring it sometimes, and when you see it perfectly white, powder it, and sift it finely, and set it again in the sun for a day, and you will have a pure white powder, which is the powder of sympathy. I like how there is almost the... You get the feeling that he's inserting unnecessary steps to make <laughs> it more work, to make it seem more likely to have a real efficacy. Yeah, and this this reminds me of other recipes that I've read from uh, particularly uh, books on alchemy where there'll be this kind of convoluted recipe instructions that uh, entail moving it in and out of the sun, hiding it in a basement, mm -hmm. and uh, in, in the more magical examples, like making sure that it's exposed uh, uh, to sunlight at, at the right degrees and through the, you know, like a westward-facing window, etc. I've got a theory about this. Let me know what you think. Probably not a very well-developed theory, more of a hypothesis. My idea is that spells and instructions like this for, for all these potions and things have all of these complicated steps, maybe not consciously, but they, they often do because they're exploiting the sunk costs fallacy. Hmm. I think about the sunk costs fallacy a lot. I think it determines a lot of our decisions. The sunk costs fallacy is that you are 
more likely to continue uh, investing in something or more likely to continue believing it or to think it was a good idea if you've already expended a lot of personal time, money or energy on it. it you're, you're trying to convince yourself that you have not wasted your resources. Right. And thus, if you tell somebody, well, uh, you know, just get this one thing from the store and grind it up into a powder and it has magical powers you've not made them go all in with it, right? Yeah. And so if it doesn't work, they're just like, well, I got ripped off. But if you make them spend days and days and doing all these complicated, laborious steps, you might be able to exploit their desire not to have feel that they have wasted their time. And thus they're more likely to be like, wow, yeah, I think it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... It's 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 kind of like if you if you you have poor in uh, assembly instructions for a piece of furniture and you have to backtrack and reassemble and switch things around at the end of it I mean I'm not going to add I'm not going to add on the additional feeling of defeat by thinking it looks bad right. I'm going to tell myself no this thing looks this looks good it's worth the money it's worth the time I spent uh, assembling it and partially disassembling it right. uh, it was it was worth the effort or I think some people may encounter this with a recipe you know you spend half a day making a cake, mm-hmm. um, my mind will not be able to just survive the reality of that cake not tasting absolutely delicious. And I think it has uh, it has a similar effect even if you're not actually trying to convince yourself it's not bad. So I think about if I spend a lot of time working on a dinner, if I mm-hmm. put a lot of work into it, I enjoy it more in the end, even if it's not like it turns out bad and I'm trying to convince myself it's actually good, even if it, I think it's actually pretty good. I just like it more if I worked on it a lot. Now, in the case of the powder sympathy, obviously, we're, we're going with the working assumption that this does not work. This is purely <laughs> magical thinking. Uh-huh. But you can easily imagine a scenario where this is used and it seems to work. Either there's just sort of a, you know, the, the psychosomatic effect of someone thinking that you're you're healing them and they, they it just puts them at ease a little bit yeah. and then they heal naturally yeah. or you know it's just kind of the 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 roll of the dice you think of the imperfect uh, medical understanding of the time poor wound treatment uh confirmation bias and it just sort of the idea too that just the mere fact that anyone's giving you know some amount just the fact that you're changing the dressings yeah. so that you can dip the dressings in this magical powder might have might play a role oh yeah totally i mean i think that's often the case with a lot of these magical treatments is that in many cases they might have actually done something helpful but it was just an unnecessary byproduct of what they thought they were doing yeah so we're we're left with a situation then where yeah this out idea of the powder of sympathies out there it's it's not working, but it may seem to work in some cases, and the, the idea remains somewhat popular. Okay. So that leaves the question, if, if enough people believe that the powder of sympathy is working or may be working or there's something to it, to the magic here, what else can you do with it? Could you perhaps tackle one of the most pressing challenges of the day? Is this where longitude comes back in? Exactly. And again, longitude is east-west positioning and latitude is north-south. And in navigating by sea, it pays to know exactly where you are. Now, all you need is a peek at the altitude of the noonday sun and a few glances at a table that gives the sun's a declination for the day, and then you've got your latitude. Yeah, so it's not so hard to know how far north or south you are. Right. But at the time, to calculate longitude, one had to depend largely on what's known as dead reckoning. Oh, boy, that sounds good. Yeah, this is calculating your current position 
based on your previous position uh, and uh, uh, and, uh, and and known or estimated speeds over a elapsed time and course. Oh, wait a second. So that's not as cool as I imagined. It's not like using a skull, holding it up to the sky no, in no. a certain way. No, now you're just talking about something that sounds very approximate and often wrong. Right. It, it, you end up, it, it's rife with cumulative errors. So essentially what you're doing here is like the first time that you, like each leg of the trip, each point, uh, you know, on on the on the map, um, it gets a, gets a little, the further out you get, it, you're, you're a little more prone to error. It's kind of like a game of telephone, right? Yeah. Where you start with one word spoken, uh, uh, whispered into ears, and it goes around in a circle. And by the end, it may or may not resemble the original word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying like you know you started at 50 degrees west, right? And then you say, well, I think we went uh, maybe about a hundred miles west today, so mm-hmm. we're at this new point west. And then I think maybe we went about a hundred miles the next day. So you, th- but each time you do that, you're reckoning from your previous guess about wh- how far west you were. Right, and then you you're also have to, to factor in what kind of tools do I have to measure these things? Can I, can I accurately gauge, like truly accurately gauge how far I've come? Mm-hmm. Do, I, do I have an accurate understanding of what time it is? Uh, these become issues. <laughs> oh, and I should also note, you also need an accurate longitude-latitude reading to make up for an up to 10-degree difference in magnetic north versus true north on certain trade routes. Okay. Okay. So, by the 16th century, we had a, a, a pretty good method for determining longitude by land, uh, depending on uh, the use of uh, Galilean moons of Jupiter as an uh, astronomical clock. But this was far more difficult to carry out by sea, so you needed a better method. Okay. Is it going to be magic? Uh, we're going to get to a, yeah, we're going to get to some magic here. Now, not everybody trying to tackle this problem was trying to tackle with magic. There was a great deal of terrestrial, celestial, and mechanical solutions that were making the rounds. And this was also uh, stirred on by the fact that there was, uh, there were at least a couple of hefty prizes, the most notable being that offered by the British government in 1714, the Longitude Prize. So there's, there's, there's not only fame and the, the solution of a problem uh, at, at stake here. There's also a, a, a cash reward. Yeah. You could already be a winner if you have some magic powder. Yeah. So enter an anonymous author. We have, <laughs> we have no idea who this was. But uh, they printed a pamphlet titled Curious Inquiries, Being Six Brief Discourses. <laughs> uh, now, a great many commentators insist that this entire pamphlet is just a work of satire, poking fun at scientific practices, kind of a, a mad magazine, or even a, you know, maybe a more, a more apt uh, comparison would be a, a modest proposal. Right, Jonathan Swift. The idea being here that we should, we should eat the poor. Yes. Yeah. But not everybody agrees that it was definitely uh, satire. So in the book Longitude, this, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time, historian uh, Davis Sobel says that it's more difficult to determine if the pamphlet prevent, presents the idea as a serious solution or mere satire. So it's not necessarily clear right, which one it's supposed to be. Yeah, it kind of just depends on who the commentator is. And that sounds like the perfect zone for comedy. Yes. And and I do have to, before we get into the grisly details here, I'm going to let everyone know that there's no evidence that, that anyone ever actually tried this out. Okay. Uh but it's, it makes for an interesting uh, discussion point here. So the, the solution that's proposed in this pamphlet uh, depends entirely on the powder of sympathy. You take a wounded dog with you to sea, and you leave someone back uh, home on shore to dip the dog's bandage 
into the uh, sympathy solution every day at noon. Okay. This will cause the dog to yelp out in pain, uh, informing you that, quote, the sun is upon the meridian in London. Compare that hour to the local time, and you can now calculate longitude. Okay. Now, this whole thing would depend not only on sympathetic magic, but also on the, the effect working across thousands of miles, uh, and also without the dog healing. Because remember, the whole scenario is that the powder of sympathy can be used to to treat, to heal the wound, uh-huh. by, to heal the wound by treating the weapon or the dressing. And in this case, you're just hoping to keep the dog's misery going so oh, that you can no. navigate. Yeah, that's horrible. And so this might actually require additional injuries to the dog. So I got to admit, I was reading about this last night a little bit, and I had my dog sit next to me on the oh. couch, and I felt so sad. It is. It's a even if I mean I'm not a dog owner, but this is a, a horrific notion. Yeah. And yet, as uh, Sobel points out, uh, the author of the pam- pamphlet goes on to state that, quote, submitting a dog to the misery of having always a wound about him is no more macabre or a mercenary than expecting a seaman to put his own eye out for the purpose of navigation. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, what does that mean? So they were like stabbing sailors' eyes so they could be good navigators? I know this sounds like just another level of, of, of grotesque magic, but... Uh, as she explains, English navigator uh, John Davies uh, had this uh, this backstaff that he uh, developed in 1595, and this improved on an older cross staff uh, or Jacob staff, and this was used. Uh, uh, this was what was required to measure the height of the sun above the horizon uh, in navigation, and you do it by looking directly into the glare of the sun with only a darkened bit of glass to protect you. Ugh. And so just a few years of this was enough to uh, destroy the, you know, one's eyesight in your favored eye. So you'd have a lot of, of um, you know, the older sailors about, and they'd be blind in one eye from using this method at the time. Now, I don't think that... I, 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 I don't know about the argument that this is, uh, is the same thing as torturing a dog, especially in the name of magic, as opposed to simply, uh, you know, making solar observations, but there you go, it's in the pamphlet. The takeaway from today's episode is staring at the sun, it works, <laughs> gets results. Okay, so let's a- answer the obvious question. Um, why didn't this work? Uh, <laughs> assuming You mean the, the, the powder of sympathy? The powder of sympathy. Why, why did this not work? Uh, why was this, this dog option uh, n- not even remotely feasible? Because it involved magic powder? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it has no basis in science or the natural laws of the universe as we understand them. Now... Some of you might be thinking, oh, well, this is this is what I've seen described as uh, spooky action at a distance. Isn't there something in quantum mechanics that says that you can have uh, uh, you know, two items become uh, uh, quantumly entangled? Uh, two particles come into contact, and as a result, any change to one of the particles creates an instantaneous uh, change in the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is a, a phenomenon in quantum mechanics, the idea of entanglement, where if two particles are entangled, you can separate them mm-hmm. across vast distances. You can take them, you know, opposite ends of the galaxy. And then supposedly looking at one of these particles will instantaneously tell you something about the state of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've actually <clears throat> I've read criticisms of the idea that this can be used to enable, for example, faster than light communication, mm-hmm. because you automatically assume, uh, oh, wow. So if you could do that, you could take them to opposite ends of the galaxy and they ha- still have an influence on one another. Then couldn't you use that to send messages instantaneously from one end of the galaxy to the other? The physicists that I've read say, no, that is not possible. Okay. You still cannot send information faster than light 
Uh, there are there are facts about how the system works that means that that mean that you can't encode information in one in a way that can be received at the other end. Okay, so even even our even the the the, the scientific ideas that we have today that most resemble sympathetic magic could not work as we understand them uh, within these parameters. No, because they're not sympathetic magic; they're quantum entanglement. <laughs> All right, so our next question, what if it had worked? Well, uh, on one hand, uh, as Umberto Eco writes in The Island of the Day Before, uh, I, mean, I imagine anyone who's read that book, you were already familiar with the powder of sympathy and this, uh, this dog angle from that. Uh, if this had worked, you would have had a world where global trade and travel depends on the torment of dogs. Uh, <laughs> so this is the alternate history we're being asked to consider here. Yeah, just kind of horrific, magical, <laughs> alternate uh, reality. But then that's the thing. If... If the dog trick works, then that means the powder of sympathy works. That means that uh, any number of sympathetic uh, magical scenarios are also true, and it just opens the the Pandora's box of of magical possibility and magical complication of life. Of course, it does. Yeah, I mean, if magic is magic, then I don't know how to finish that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, everything's different then. Yeah, I mean, you have you have magical spies running around. Voodoo dolls are are, are just like everybody has a voodoo doll. It's just a growth industry. Uh-huh. You're going to have one for everybody you know, just to make it's like a cold war of voodoo for everybody. Now, one thing I do want to point out about the kind of magic you're talking about is if we go back to my earlier distinction between magical law, magic mm-hmm. that operates by law and has consistent results, versus capricious magic. This would seem to be something that's more like magical law, right? They're mm-hmm. they're insisting that this would work every time. It would be a dependable principle of nature. Oh yeah, it would have to be. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to to base navigation around it. Because uh, again, this was this was life and death. Like, yeah. like that that was the. I can't really stress that enough. That that was the whole reason for this this quest for a solution to the longitude problem. So it's not like you're praying to one of the gods to make the dog on your ship. Uh, give you the longitude correctly and it may work or it may not. Their idea was, if, if anybody actually believed this, the idea was that this could be depended on. And in that sense, maybe it wouldn't actually change all that much other than it would make the world a much worse place because of all <laughs> these people cutting dogs. But it wouldn't change all that much in terms of our understanding of reality because it would still be yet another dependable principle. Yeah, yeah. Now, I imagine everyone's wondering at this point, okay, well, what actually solved the problem? How did we actually uh, uh, figure out a way to to accurately determine uh, longitude? Fun fact, nobody knew how far they were east or west until they had iPhones. (laughs) Well, uh, there's actually actually something to that. But um, the main individual that's credited with with solving the problem initially is uh, 18th century clockmaker John Harrison. Hmm. So he created the first clock that was accurate enough to determine longitude at sea, uh, most notably here the the Jeffrey's Watch and the Sea Watch, which is also known as H4. And this revolutionized uh, navigation and greatly improved the safety of sea travel. Hmm. And then after that, we had other technological advances uh, that would introduce wireless time signals sent by uh, telegraphy, radar, uh, the radio-based Lorne system, and, of course, GPS technology. All right. That's the big one. And, again, coming back to your, your comment on iPhones, like once we, once we have the GPS in place, like that, that certainly just fixes everything in terms of knowing where you are in the world and moving around anyway. 
So please just confirm to us. We we don't know any evidence of dogs actually being tortured for navigation. That didn't happen in reality as far as we know. As far as I know, it did not happen. Uh, and certainly do not try it because you're a monster if you do. Well, I feel much better now. Yes. <laughs> now, we cannot say the same with with uh, with definite uh, accuracy for rabbits. And that's what we're going to we're going to get to next after a break. All right, we're back. So we're going to we're going we're gonna to transport ourselves in time now. We're going to we're going to move on up to the 20th century. All right, so we're going to chase the connection between uh seafaring navigation or seafaring communication mm-hmm. and blood magic. Yes. <laughs> To the modern era. That's right. That's right. So, inevitably, we're talking about military matters and military research here. And uh, military interests have always pushed technological advancements. I mean, in, in weaponry, obviously, uh, but also in everything from food storage to communication. And in times of war, and, and certainly in times of total war, uh, this has a way of, uh, of, of even absorbing non-military explorations. I mean, just consider German rocketry during the Second World War. You had all these mines that in many cases had dreamed of space exploration, and they were maneuvered into developing uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction instead, such as the, the V-weapons. Like the V-2 rocket. Yeah. And after the, the flames of the Second World War died down, of course, the Cold War set in. The race was on to, to perfect one's weaponry, to advance uh, to a state of uh, superiority over your rival superpower. And with nothing short of, of nuclear war haunting the horizon, what wouldn't you try? What uh, riskier or even unlikely avenues wouldn't you explore in hopes of gaining that upper hand? Yeah, I think sometimes it's easy for us today to look back on on Cold War myopia, on the, you know, the, the behavior of the leadership in both uh, the Western powers and in the, the Soviet Union and to kind of and to, I don't know, think like, wow, how paranoid and stupid they were. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that they necessarily behaved wisely. Uh, I think in most cases they probably didn't. Yet during the Cold War, it's uh, if you put yourself back in the past during the Cold War, and you take away the fact that you know how everything turned out, it's easy to understand why people were highly motivated by fear. Yeah. And, and, and as we're going to be discussing the, like the scientific uh, exploration of essentially paranormal phenomenon, uh, you know, this is a... This is an area where you can also make the, make the argument. Well, had that had the slimy the slime mold tentacle of science really truly explored that cavern? Well, another how do we know for <laughs> sure that this ta- this this part of the maze doesn't lead to the the, the food reward? I mean, one of the things about uh, the slime mold of science not having any top down control means that sometimes uh, uh, one one tendril might not know what the other tendrils are doing. Right. Uh, so one tendril might be creeping down an avenue that is in fact a dead end and mm-hmm. has been explored before, or might be creeping down some avenue in secret so that other tendrils might not know what it's doing because it's exploring some some cavern in secret. And that's something we we often get in the development of military and defense technology. Right, and then of course our 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 example, our metaphor of the the slime mold is science is kind of the ideal shape of science. But in times of war, you may have someone come in and say, actually, I'm going to be the king of science uh-huh. right now. Uh, hey, get this tendril down this hallway because I, I really need this to work or I think it could work. But boss, that's a bad hallway. It doesn't <laughs> work. 
Doesn't matter. Start sending slime down there, and we'll we'll worry about it in a, <laughs> in a, you know five to ten years. Okay, so the hallway we're going to be talking about in this section is going to be parapsychology, right? Right, and we see this play into the history of both U.S. and Soviet uh, experimentation. Uh, you know, looking into parapsychology and, and specifically mind control uh, being a big one. Uh, DARPA uh, certainly explored the possibilities. You had Sidney Gottlieb, who was head of the uh, the Office of Technical Service at the CIA, and he spearheaded such projects as MK Ultra, which uh, I, I imagine a number of you are familiar with. This is the the project that explored the possibilities of LSD enabled mind control. Yeah, we explored that a little bit. Uh, I think definitely in the episode where we talked about what mind control would feel yes. like if it were mm-hmm. possible. That's right, we did. And then, of course, the Soviets were conducting their own experiments. Uh, and this, this now this is a situation where we don't always have the best primary uh, sources on what exactly was going on. Right. Uh, it's kind of there's a game of telephone going on here. There's kind of a, a situation of dead reckoning with the reporting of what the, the Soviets were actually up to. Yeah. Now, as far as U.S. intelligence services, we do now have some declassified documents mm-hmm. and still have parts redacted in some cases and all that. But uh but, yeah, we have descriptions now of what was going on, for example, in the CIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but meanwhile, with the, the Soviets, there's some areas where we have less information. For instance, there is a 1973 study compiled by the RAND Corporation for DARPA, and they make special mention of Russia's plan to launch psychics into orbit. Into orbit? Yeah. In spaceships or just naked? Um, I assume in spaceships. Okay. But, uh. I'm thinking of psychic space gods just flying naked through space, looking down over the prairies of the United States. Well, there is a certain guild navigator vibe to this for sure. Totally. Uh, so the quote from this particular, uh, report is, regarding a precognition, we found only one unverified report by a Soviet investigator that a program was being planned to train astronauts to, quote, foresee and to avoid accidents in space. <laughs> what? Yeah. It was clear from the context that he was referring to precognitive process. Now, hold on a second. If you were developing in the Cold War context, Mm -hmm. you've got projects somewhere deep in your defense research agencies to develop precognition where you know what's going to happen before it happens. Would you really primarily think to employ it by having astronauts look into the future to make sure there's not going to be an accident during their space (laughs) mission? That just doesn't seem like the primary way that people would put this to use. Yeah, I mean, it makes you ask, is this true? Is this false? Is this Russian disinformation? Certainly could be. Certainly saying, hey, uh, what are we up to? Well, we're shooting psychics into space. You better get on that. Think about that and not this uh, this 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 other thing that we're working on that's actually a legitimate threat. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing when you're considering defense capabilities in the Cold War context, not just Cold War. I mean, throughout the history of, mm-hmm. of you know, great powers interacting with one another. But it's certainly there in the Cold War is that a lot of capability that was developed or capability that was just talked about was not necessarily for the purpose of executing that capability in a real scenario, but was for the purpose of provoking some kind of impression or behavior on the other side. Yeah. So if you're doing research for some kind of U.S. defense or security agency, you might want to put out reports creating the impression for the Soviets that you have some kind of capability you don't really have just because you want them to react to it in a certain way and vice versa. Yeah, like another example that was brought up in that uh, same Rand uh, uh, paper was the idea that uh, one might be able to use uh, uh, psychokinesis 
to disrupt an uh, intercontinental ballistic missile's electronic guidance system. What? Yeah, so the, like, imagine it. The, 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 the nuclear death is coming down in the form of this warhead. Right. And then uh, all this uh, psychic soldier needs to do is look up at it, concentrate just right, and click something inside it. So they've detected a launch. The president immediately picks up the phone, dials up the Long Island medium. Yeah, yeah exactly. Get her on the get case. Those mus- get those missiles out of the air. <laughs> now, of course, researchers uh, researchers were ultimately on both sides interested in, in all forms of extrasensory perception. Uh, we you know we have we have documents and releases on things like uh, tele- telepathy, clara- uh, clairvoyance, uh, precognition, uh, psychokinesis, um, voluntary nervous system control, faith healing, the use of uh, dowsing rods and uh, and uh, and dermo optics, uh, the ability to, to uh, for instance, to see with one's own hands, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So there was a lot of stuff that was. At least, uh, at least looked into, if not you know thoroughly explored. Okay. And of course, this this whole scene is tremendously interesting, and we could devote uh, multiple podcasts to just its exploration. But uh, Robert, I know you want to talk about cutting animals. Yes, that that's our focus here today is the the use of of blood magic in a in a nautical sense. Well, okay, so one source that uh, we looked at that I thought was pretty interesting was this 2017 article by a national security journalist named Sharon Weinberger. And so this article was published in IEEE Spectrum, uh, I think just a month or so ago, but it's from a book called The Imagineers of War. So it's an adapted chapter, and the article was called The Bunny, the Witch, and the War Room. I like that, yeah. Yeah, the C.S. Lewis connection, establishing a little bit of... Uh, of uh, which would that be, homeopathic or contagious magic with C.S. Lewis? I guess homeopathic. Yeah, I think so. Now, some of you may have heard Weinberger because she was recently a, a guest on NPR's Fresh Air, where she talks about uh, about about this book and about uh, uh, this particular chapter here. And Weinberger points out that in the U.S., a lot of this, this zeal for paranormal research, uh, it came together in the wake of the 1957 Soviet Sputnik launch. So Washington ends up moving after this to prioritize research via the creation of the Advanced Research Projects Agency. This was the first space agency, and it is the entity that becomes DARPA. Yeah, and to get into the relevant part of Weinberger's article, so you, Robert, you already mentioned this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, yeah. who was apparently quite a character. Mm-hmm. He, he was a, uh, a chemist by original training. But he was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Technical Service. I think you already mentioned that division earlier in the early 1970s. And in the early 1970s, this division had contracted the Stanford Research Institute to carry out a program of experiments in the field of parapsychology, which we already mentioned. Now, parapsychology is paranormal psychic phenomena. So some of the stuff we've already mentioned, telepathy, telekinesis, precognition, remote viewing. I think they were especially into remote viewing because that was mm-hmm. like it was like having a spy plane that could go inside an enemy base and just see what was on anybody's desk and mm-hmm. all that if it actually worked. And of course this is something that's explored in a lot of uh uh, science fiction treatments, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, Stranger Things or, or a Firestarter. Yeah. Uh, you know, anytime you have a shadowy government lab, you often find echoes of, of this, uh, of these experiments there. Right. So it, it's obvious that if it, there were anything real to be discovered in this arena, like if there is anything to parapsychology, of course, it would be of tremendous use to military and intelligence agencies. 
so the the director of the of ARPA at the time, uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency in the early 1970s, Stephen Lukasik, recalls going to visit Sidney Gottlieb in 1971, and apparently one of the subjects Gottlieb wanted to talk about with talk talk to him about was bunnies. Yes. Dead bunnies and their use in strategic nuclear arms positioning around the world. (laughs) Now, in 1970, a book had been released in the United States called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain by Sheila Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder. And this book claimed to document the findings of Soviet research into psychic phenomena such as ESP. It was saying, look, the Soviets are already making great strides in parapsychology. They're already figuring out how to do all the CSP stuff. And this apparently spurred these American officials to get into the game. Now, I haven't read this book, but I did a little reading about it, looking at uh, some of the things that appear to be talked about in it, some things reviewers have said. And admitting that I haven't read the book, it looks to me very sketchy. <laughs> it looks to me like this book perhaps fraudulently reports or at least credulously passes on reports of ESP results as if they're genuine. Now, maybe I, I hope I'm being fair. Maybe I'm not being fair. And if I got into it, the authors would show a little, little bit more skepticism. But I'm um, I'm a little bit wary of anything that is passed on as true from the contents of this book, just mm-hmm. at first glance. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, where do the bunnies come in? Well, according to the allegations in this book by uh, by Ostrander and Schroeder, one experiment used a supposed psychic connection between mothers and recently born infant mammals to establish communication across difficult physical barriers. Specifically, this involved nuclear submarines. Now, in the Cold War, strategic defense for both the United States and the Soviet Union meant being able to offer a credible threat of nuclear retaliation in the event of an act of war. So you might ask somebody, wait a minute, you know, if we don't want to start a world war and kill everybody, why do we need nuclear weapons? And the reasoning at the time given by both powers was, well, we need them as a credible threat of retaliation to prevent the other side from attacking us first. And one of the most important things that you could do in order to make sure that you had retaliatory power was to make sure that you had some hidden weapons. So you might have ground-based weapons all over the place, but the enemy might know where some of those are. You know, you never know how good the spying is. But if you could launch missiles from a deep water submarine... Mm -hmm. There's, you know, you you could keep you could move them all over the place in secret and the enemy wouldn't be able to take out all of your capabilities. So you could always retaliate and the submarines could always stay hidden as long as they stayed submerged deep in the ocean. And this is where we get the idea of these these nuclear subs with with nuclear missiles going out and essentially just hanging out in the ocean Mm -hmm. in case they are needed. But this sort of defeated the purpose because if you wanted your SLBMs, as they were known, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, to respond quickly to an attack, you would need to be able to have rapid wireless communication with your nuclear subs, right? You need to get Mm -hmm. the message out to them that it's time to retaliate. It wasn't easy to get a message to these crafts submerged so deep underwater And one alleged Soviet solution, according to Ostrander and Schroeder, was psychic rabbit research. So the theory went something like this. 
You've got an inherent psychic link that's created between the brain of a mother and her immediate offspring. If a baby rabbit is killed, supposedly its mother will be able to know this instantly, even at a great distance. So hypothetically, you could keep a mother rabbit in a cage on a submarine and keep its baby back at the home base. And if you needed your nuclear sub to rise up to the shallows in order to receive orders to execute a launch, you would just kill the baby rabbit. Now, immediately, the mother should start showing symptoms of distress. No, that's kind of a vague word. Mm -hmm. Like, what does distress look like in a rabbit? A rabbit, not only a rabbit, but a rabbit that's kept on a submarine. Right. It would know psychically that its baby had perished, and this would mean the person watching over the rabbit on the submarine would signal the officers and the sub would rise to the proper depth to receive orders. Now, according to Ostrander and Schroeder, the Soviets claimed their experiments were successful and the technique worked. I doubt it. Yeah, I, I, I just, we'll discuss. I just can't imagine a scenario in which this works. Um, I so I, I'm skeptical at multiple levels mm-hmm. of this. I don't know whether they actually did this or not. It's reported that they did this, but I'm skeptical of the reports. Uh, and of course, even if they did actually try it and claim that it worked, I. Don't believe them. Yeah. Though I do like the story of this and how it reveals kind of the lunacy of uh, of nuclear war right. and, uh, and retaliatory attacks, you know, and, and, yeah. and certainly goes along uh, rather nicely or frighteningly with uh, various yeah. uh, stories we have about like uh, near incidents of, right. uh, of, of false launches. Yeah, God, those are terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's scary how close we've come in some scenarios yeah. to an accidental nuclear war. Uh, you know, the worst possible outcome that there could be on planet Earth mm-hmm. would be a nuclear exchange. And and it's it's terrifying to think that such a thing could happen without incredibly deliberate. I mean, it's terrifying to think it could happen for any reason. Right. But it's just... A, added absurdity that it could happen by accident. Yeah, and even more absurdity to say it could happen because you misinterpreted a distressed rabbit on a submarine. Right. Uh, Now, hopefully what they had in mind, if anybody was actually thinking about implementing something like this, would be more what I talked about. Not that you'd see a distressed rabbit and you just launch, but that you'd see a distressed rabbit and that would mean, okay, come up from the deep water so you can receive a signal. Mm-hmm. And then you'd get your complete orders once you were at the surface. Right. So, so like if this if this were utilized uh, by the Soviets, you could also imagine a scenario where you have like a Soviet sleeper agent hanging out in an apartment, like cleaning guns and looking after a pet rabbit. And then the right. rabbit's distressed and he's like, oh, I've got to go to the, the payphone across town and await my call to see who I'm supposed to assassinate. Wait, so there'd be multiple levels of rabbits there. Oh, no, wait, no, he wouldn't <laughs> be communicating with a submarine. It would just be the rabbit. Right. This would just the rabbit used as a means of communicating yeah. with, uh, you know, between agents. In so the, in the U.S. I getting guess. rid of the number stations or, you know, secret radio communications, mm-hmm. you just have rabbit. Yeah. Does this factor into the Americans at all? You, you've been telling <laughs> me to, that I need to watch pick up the Americans again. Do they oh, have any dude, rabbit I like the, I, I haven't gotten to any rabbits <laughs> if they're in there, but I'm not done with the series yet. Okay. The series isn't over yet. OK, but I've not gotten to any rabbits anyway. So reports of ESP research in the Soviet Union did help sort of create this climate of fear in U.S. defense research circles. It's what we've talked about. It's the sort of, uh, I don't know, you might almost call it like conflict jealousy. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like advantage paranoia. If the Soviets are going to have psychic assassins, shouldn't we have them too? 
if they're remote viewing, shouldn't we be doing some remote viewing as well? The Soviets have have are training clowning troops. If they have clown troops, we've got to have clown troops too. start recruiting. (laughs) But obviously, I mean, I think you'll probably agree with me that I doubt any either side ever had any real success at anything like this. And I almost doubt how deep the research actually went on either side. I mean, I think you might get a few stories of some research on this, but they it probably didn't take them too long to figure out on both sides, however deep they went, that this was nonsense and it was never going to work. Yeah, I guess you have to ask yourself, like, imagine wherever you work, imagine a bad idea, like an un- totally unworkable idea coming down from management. How long can that initiative live within your organization? Depends on how delusional management is. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> And actually, no, that's a good point, because I can see that being a problem. For example, in your business scenario, if management does not respond well to negative feedback Mm -hmm. or criticism, as sometimes governments don't, especially totalitarian governments, imagine you are a Soviet scientist and you're properly you're exhibiting proper scientific skepticism. But you get orders from the top down telling you you need to figure out how to make psychic communication work for spies you're like, okay, I know that's not real, but if I tell my boss that, I might just go to the gulag. Right. I've, I've got to at least look like I'm, I'm throwing due diligence at the, at the problem. Yeah. And, the, of course, we know from, from other instances that the Soviet Union was not, uh, not immune to being totally anti-science for political reasons. I mean, I think about, like, a Lysenkoism, right? The, this this completely non-scientific idea about biology and agriculture pushed oh, by yeah. this guy Trofim Lysenko, uh, that you know, they that they tried to implement, they tried to just make it science by force. Mm-hmm. Say like, yes, this is what science is now, but you know it wasn't true. <laughs> anyway, back to the end of the story. So U.S. defense and intel research uh, on parapsychology went down a lot of weird rabbit holes, so to speak. To make <laughs> a bad pun. Uh, but the, the ARPA researcher George Lawrence, who had been assigned to work on the parapsychology research, later said, quote, I worked so long and so hard and dealt with so many fools and charlatans. There is no question in my mind that all of it is bunk. All right. So <laughs> much of them, pretty much all of it didn't work. Right. And in this case, the, the, the rabbit scenario, if it was even truly attempted, obviously didn't work. But why doesn't it work? Well, I mean, how would it work? So I want to say effects in the world, if you can make a change in something, if you can cause an effect, it always appears to be mediated by the transfer of energy. Mm -hmm. In order to send a signal, you've got to direct some form of energy or matter transfer that makes a change in your environment, something you can detect. So, uh, you know, talking transfers acoustic energy back and forth. Writing a letter is storage on physical matter. You have to spend energy to move it one place to another. You can transmit by radio waves. That's energy. When you're talking about psychic transmission, you're proposing that information is being transmitted from one place to another with no known quantity of energy being exchanged in between. And first of all, that just doesn't jive with anything we know about science. Mm-hmm. But also, I want to just roll with the idea of maybe psychic energy is real. Okay. Okay. And I want to just accept that as a hypothetical for for a second and apply some critical thinking to it. Maybe you can tell me if I'm being overly uh, pedantic here. But (laughs) I've got a prediction. 
if psychic powers are real, if we do discover that, for example, humans or rabbits can wirelessly share thoughts with one another, I would think the effectiveness of this information transfer would have to be mediated by physical distance. Because if you're transmitting something between people's brains, think about your head like an antenna. An antenna transmits omnidirectionally. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the further you get away from the antenna, the much uh, greatly proportionally weaker the signal is. It works by the inverse square law. So the further you get away, the much weaker the signal becomes. And eventually it's going to become indistinguishable from whatever other noise is floating around in the ether around you. So I don't see how you could have a psychic connection between a mother rabbit and a baby rabbit, even if such psychic connections are possible it would really be detectable across hundreds of feet of ocean water and, you know, thousands of kilometers. Well, and yeah, it also comes down to the fact, like, why would it need to be that strong? If this were if this were an actual, essentially biological reality, it would be an evolved biological reality. Yeah. What purpose would it serve? Yeah. And, and we, we know, too, that evolution weeds out. Um, you know, unnecessary energy expenditures. Yes. Uh, the, the claw on the, on the crab is only going to be as big as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. So, you, <laughs> like, in, under what scenario would rabbits have evolved to deal with uh, not only the, uh, you know, the kidnapping of young, but the, but the transport of that young across the globe and then deep under the sea? <laughs> that it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we, we've got to get to your alternate history hypothetical with magic here. We, we already sort of have explored this a little bit. It's basically but, the same answer. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would have happened if the Soviets in fact discovered it is real? You can communicate with submarines via, via rabbits and you had to kill baby rabbits, which also makes me very sad to think about. Uh, how would history be different? Well, it would mean a rabbit on every submarine. Uh, it would mean that uh, you'd have psychic spies, precog astro- uh, cosmonauts, uh, remote viewing and remote writing is just a standard espionage tool. And then the other thing is that, uh, you know, how, how does all of this, uh, the, the, this, uh, this newfound uh, psychic technology, how does it all remain just within the government? Does it end up trickling down to the private sector as well? Do you end up having a precog in every corporation, <laughs> a scanner cop in every police precinct? God, and, I hope so. <laughs> so obviously that didn't come to pass, so we don't even have to consider it. But it's, it's, it's basically the same answer as in our previous question. If this had been true, then what else would have been true? And it would have just completely ch- changed our world. It would, there would just be magic or psychic phenomenon just utilized in, in every interest. Though I do want to point out, if this were true, mm-hmm. again, it would follow the laws of magic as opposed to the capricious magic or it wouldn't be useful. Yeah. Right. Like if you if it's capricious magic that allows psychic connection between mother rabbits and baby rabbits, it would not be a dependable tool for communicating with your submarine officers if it only worked at a random amount percent of the time. Right. It has to work every time. Otherwise, it cannot be part of your 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 country's uh, you know d- defense protocol. Yeah. It, it has to work every time or a predictably high percent of the yeah. time. Um, yeah, and so if it's just capricious, it's just apparently at random, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, like there's somebody up there making random decisions about it, 
then this does just sort of become a part of science, right? We study the phenomenon, we discover when it works, when it doesn't work, at what rate it works, and it becomes just part of the known laws of reality, even if we don't understand the mechanism. That's true. Now, obviously, the the the, the blood magic with rabbits thing didn't uh, didn't shake out. Uh, how did that? How how did science step in and solve this problem? Well, this is actually kind of interesting. I think so. By the time of the Cold War, obviously, we had radio transmissions, mm-hmm. wireless radio, where we could talk to submarines that way if they were at the surface of the water, right? You go up to the surface, you put up a, a radio antenna, we can talk to you. But that sort of defeats the purpose of a submarine, right? You come up to the surface of the water, put up your antenna, you are suddenly detectable to right. enemy enemy forces. Um, so the problem was that standard radio waves could not penetrate deep oceans to reach deep sea subs, um, and yeah, the question is, was there any way to signal them without killing rabbits and without forcing them to rise to the surface and reveal themselves? So the problem with penetrating deep sea water is that electromagnetic radiation, which is what we use to transmit radio waves, is attenuated by seawater uh, because seawater is a reasonably good electrical conductor. Sort of similar to how radio waves will have a hard time penetrating a shield of conductive metal, right? You could put a shield of conductive metal around you and prevent radio signals from getting to your cell phone or to your brain or whatever. And uh, at standard frequencies, a signal just can't get very far under the ocean. But the extent to which a radio signal is attenuated is determined by the frequency of the transmission. The lower the frequency, the deeper it goes into the water. So how low would we need to make the frequency to get down to deep sea subs? Apparently, you have to go really, really low. And this is where we meet my friend Elf. Ah, so the the elves step in and solve everything. So we do have a magical solution. It, in fact, is. (laughs) No, it's not. Elf stands for extremely low frequency. Ah, yes. So FM radio, for example, operates on the scale of tens to hundreds of megahertz in, in the radio frequency. A mega, megahertz is a million hertz. On the other hand, ELF transmissions occur at a scale of tens of hertz. So this is literally millions of times lower frequency than FM radio. And as you know, frequency and wavelength are inversely correlated, right? The, the uh, lower your frequency, the longer your wavelength. So we're talking about massive, massive, huge waves of electromagnetic energy. You might also know that if you want to generate a massively long wavelength, you need a massively big antenna. And in the in the idea of ELF transmission, these general because you couldn't build a, an antenna this big, it was ridiculous, you mm-hmm. know, a standard metal antenna. So instead, what you had to do was uh, essentially put together the form of extremely long assemblies of wires hung up on poles. We're talking like dozens of miles long. And I've actually seen varying reports the length of these wires uh, of the two known ELF transmitters in the United States. And I don't know if these varying reports reflect different stages on the project or just confusion or misreporting or what. But definitely in the realm of dozens of miles long, if not longer, uh, but anyway, the United States supposedly had these two stations for ELF sub, uh, subcoms, and it was one in Clam Lake, Wisconsin, another one in Republic, Michigan. But what these things would do is have these huge, long wires on poles that would sort of use the Earth itself as an antenna, and then it would bounce this ELF signal off the ionosphere and then back down into the water, and then it would reach the sub. 
of course, at great at great depth like that, communication is one way. There's mm-hmm. no way for the submarine to signal back. Also, communications transmitted by extremely low frequency had to be extremely simple because bandwidth is very low at that frequency. This is interesting. It, it, basically, we have an answer here that uses actual science, but but kind of has the same relationship. You could only, you, all you could do would be to signal the sub and make them uh, reach a position where they could be, you could communicate with them. Yeah, basically, you can say like, "All right, come up for orders. It's time." Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there were reports a few years back. Obviously, things have developed since the late twentieth right. century. There were a few reports I read from I think around two thousand ten or so. Uh, where Lockheed Martin was developing a program called Communications at Speed and Depth. And this would use different combinations of things to enable different types of communication. One would be antenna buoys attached to submarines by cables that are several miles long. And this would allow subs to communicate both ways while staying deep and operating at normal speed. Another option was something I thought was interesting. It was an acoustic to RF buoy system. So here the submarine launches a buoy or a plane drops a buoy. Either way, you've got a communication buoy on the surface with a radio antenna on it. But then the buoy communicates with the submarine via acoustic transmission, sound Hmm. waves in the water, which travel through the water fine over long distances. So there you have it. No dead rabbits required. As far as we know. (laughs) Now, Now, who knows what happened when they're installing those giant antennas out in the uh, Wisconsin and Michigan wilderness? Oh, yeah. I know. I think there was some environmentalist opposition to, like, the Reagan administration wanting to do some various ELF communication projects. So uh, I I cannot say, honestly, that no rabbits were harmed in the making of this film. But at least they weren't killing baby rabbits to communicate with mother rabbits in a cage in the red room. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, as we as we begin to close out here, uh, I do want to throw in one more uh, uh, little tidbit here from uh, from Sharon uh, Weinberger, who we uh, cited earlier. She points out that while the world of blood magic submarine communication and psychic soldiers didn't come to pass, uh, George Lawrence, the uh, the DARPA program uh, manager that we uh, mentioned earlier, he was super into this idea of brain computer interfaces. Uh, so she shares this. Uh, this is actually from the Fresh Air interview. He was part of this new age counterculture, which even at DARPA was unusual at the time. He kind of belonged to the zeitgeist, and he was excited by the idea of communicating directly with the human brain. But rather than doing it through magicians or bunny rabbits, he said, suppose we can do it through computers. <laughs> now, uh, remember what I said earlier about using telepathy and, and psychokinesis uh, uh, to uh, you know, to manipulate uh, ICBMs, or indeed to establish a, a quasi uh, a symbiotic relationship between a human brain and computing equipment. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially, uh, what he did uh, in, in in the midst of all of this uh, this magic and, and essentially you know nonsense, I guess you could say, he ended up laying the foundation for the field of brain computer interface and bio cybernetic computing. The very field that you and I discuss at length in our uh, in our podcast episode, Brain to Brain, the Science of Technotelepathy. And we've also discussed in our recent neurosecurity episode. Yeah, yeah, it came up there as well. So it, it, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Because uh, that kind of technology, I think we even commented on it when we were, we were, we were uh, discussing it. It, it. it sounds a bit like magic, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. it? It makes me think of there's a line in William Gibson's Neuromancer where he's talking, you know, it's the futuristic cyberpunk uh, environment and talking about technology reaching the point 
where humans can make their most magical ideas actually real, uh, such as uh, making a pact with a demon, which becomes possible in this book because it's you may end up making a pact with a, an artificial intelligence. Right. But uh, we have a case here, yeah, where it was something that is seemingly magical, the idea that, that, that one brain can speak to another uh, via some sort of a, an interface, be it magical or technological, as uh, the case ends up being. The only way to achieve real magic is not through magic. Yeah, but through but through science, calling on the old uh, the old slime mold itself. So there you have it. Uh, hope you enjoyed this uh, this this journey, this uh, this exploration into into history, into uh, into magic, into science. We really covered a lot of bases here. About the only thing we didn't do, we didn't drag in a lot of mythology or uh, or theology, but we uh, we hit on a number of topics here. This was a weird one, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> so so hopefully uh, everyone out there uh, feels the same. Uh, but hey, let us know about it. In the meantime, you can check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, including the episodes that I mentioned here. We'll have links to related episodes on the landing page for this episode. Uh, you'll also find videos, blog posts, you name it. Links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all those things. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us, as always, at BlowTheMindAtHowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.